turn together to the book of Genesis. This morning we will be looking at chapter 19. If you'd open your Bibles to Genesis 19, and please give attention to the reading of the holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God. It is the Word of God that is authoritative. Not studies, not newspaper articles, not public opinion. It is the unchanging Word of God. Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and to do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place! For the Lord is about to destroy it. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. 
Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords! Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up from Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve our offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray, Lord, that You would take Your Word, a Word that is difficult for us, and that You would apply it to our hearts. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Our text this morning is a very difficult text. Perhaps it was difficult for you even as it was read. It is such a difficult text that many commentators and books upon preaching will say that it is an unpreachable text. That you ought to just skip over it and go right to chapter 20. 
It's also a very difficult text because it is my concern, not my worry, nor my fear. But it is my concern to do that as I am doing right now, standing and reading this text and expounding upon it will become a crime in our nation in short order. Genesis 19 is hate speech, after all. But there's a third reason why it is a difficult text. It's because this text tempts the church to look and to cry out, look at them. And make no introspection. Look at me. And so this morning we are going to attempt to tackle this text in the midst of all its difficulties and to see sin in all of its blackness. I would encourage especially the parents of young ones to this afternoon and during the week to use this text not to explain it, but use it as a jumping off point to talk to your children about the blackness of their own sin that they experience every day. This morning I'd like us to see briefly three things. First, to see sin worthy of destruction. Second, to see that sin blinds. And third, to see that sin must be destroyed. Sin is worthy of destruction. It blinds. And it must be destroyed. Let's begin then by looking at the very first few verses of chapter 19. The warning that we had heard about in chapter 18 is about to come. We knew something was coming to Sodom because of the interview that Abraham had with the Lord. But at this point, we don't know what the outcome will be. Where we last left the story, God had promised to Abraham that if there were ten righteous people in this city, he would not destroy it. And so the two other men, that is the angels that were with the Lord, now arrive at Sodom. They come in the evening, and as our story unfolds, we know that something is just not quite right. If this were a film, the, the picture might be grainy, or there might be shadows, or there might be that kind of ominous music that plays in the background that tells you, you're going to jump out of your seat soon, because something is going to happen. They come in the evening, and you can imagine, it is dark. And darkness reminds us of sin, and of death, of horrors. There's a reason why children are afraid of the dark. Because you can't see everything. You don't know what's around the corner. Darkness is where sin breeds. It's one of the reasons why Jesus Christ came to be the light of the world. And they come to the gate of Sodom and Lot is sitting here. And we wonder for ourselves, why is Lot sitting there? After all, he's just a sojourner. He's not even a citizen of this city. Why is he sitting in the place of commerce and judgment? And these two men are greeted by Lot and he, he offers to take them into his home. And again we wonder, why is there no one else in the city willing to take them in? Surely someone is a man of means and of wealth. Someone has a feast prepared. Someone here surely will show hospitality to strangers. 
There were no other offers. And the offer from Lot is very odd. It's a very nervous offer. Lot rises and he sees them and he goes over to them and he presses them. He will not let them stay out in the town square. He uses very strong language. And the Hebrew here is very vivid. When it says that he pressed them, it's as if he was grabbing them, tugging them, pushing them toward his house. Why is this? Well, you see, Lot sees immediately that they are not like Sodom. Upon first impression, he bows down before them. He calls them, my lords. And he responds to their test with a sense of urgency. The angels, I don't know if they have any real intention of staying in the town square, but this is a clear test for Lot. To make Lot think, Think about if you lived in your neighborhood and you weren't shackled there by finances. And it was a place where you were afraid for strangers to be outside at night. Wouldn't that make you think again about your neighbors? The people you associate with? And the people you go to the ball game with and eat in restaurants with? And they say, oh, we'll just stay out here in the town square. And he says, no, no, brothers, you can't do this. And there's a great sense of urgency. Look at it as he goes on. He says, no, you must come. Come and spend the night with me. And then you can get up early, really early. And you can get out of town before anybody gets up. You can be on your way. You can be 20 miles away before anybody wakes up. This is how Lot views his surroundings. There's a sense of urgency when the warning comes. And we can see why there is so. Because we see the sin that is cried out to the Lord. It is a horrible and wicked sin. It does not take long for word to get around. It's the time span of a quick dinner. Lot does not have time to make bread like Abraham did, to let it rise in the heat. He does not have time to dress a calf. They eat unleavened bread. This is the equivalent of a microwave TV dinner. And they sit down and they eat, and no sooner are they finished, but that the house is surrounded. And again, Moses here wants us to see the wickedness of this town, that it is surrounded and that every man from every quarter of the city is involved in this. The language is very vivid. To the last man, our translation says. It could also be translated from every quarter or section of the city. There is no one uninvolved, old and young. They are all about wickedness. And they are open in their sin. They don't knock on the door and say, Lot, can we, can we ask a favor of you? No, no, no. They bang on the door and they shout for everyone to hear. Those guests, send them out. So that we might do our wickedness upon them. There's no shame at all. Sodom is a place where sin is celebrated. It is not tolerated. It is celebrated. 
And if we think about it, isn't that a place in which our nation is coming to? Not just this particular sin, not just this particular perversion of the seventh commandment, violation of nature and marriage vows. No, sin is celebrated everywhere. Our celebrities become more famous by their drug use. Our businessmen become savvier by their wickedness and lying and theft of others. It is interest. It is fodder for the things that we read in the supermarket. That's the kind of place Sodom is. And it's very clear what this sin is. Men have tried for many years to explain Sodom's sin away. It was that they just weren't very hospitable. They should have offered a meal. Maybe they were a little too loud. They shouldn't have yelled. But no, it's very clear what this sin is because you see this sin is not unique to Sodom. This sin is not unique to American culture. If we may say this, this sin is ordinary in the world. It was the mark of Greece with all its great philosophy. It was rife in Rome for all of her military power. It was established as the sin of very King James himself. It is something that is seen throughout all of time and lands. Because man is driven to wickedness. You see, this sin is not a sin that men and women are judged for. This sin is a sin of judgment. You see, as we look out at our nation and we complain about gay marriage and hate crimes and the changing of our society, we need to understand God is not going to judge the United States because of that. We are already under judgment. Paul says in Romans 1 that this is a sign that God's judgment is upon us. You see, this wickedness that we see is a sign of the millions and millions that we kill in the womb. It is a sign of the complete lack of hospitality that we have for our neighbors. It is a sign of the church abandoning the gospel. It is a sign of the church abandoning works of mercy. It is a sign of a society lost in itself, turned on itself, and standing against God. That is Sodom. It is great wickedness. And it is persistent wickedness. Because you see, they will not cease from their sin. They are persistent in it. Lot goes out, and you can imagine the scene. He opens the door, runs out quickly, slams it behind him, and stands between the mob and the door. And Lot here does his best Gary Cooper act. You've seen the movies. Trying to shame the men. You, you've seen that. The famous book and film where the mob comes to take the criminal out of the jail and is met by one man who shames them all and they slink away in silence. But you see, that doesn't happen in Sodom. Lot comes out and he entreats them. He pleads with them. He pleads with them for their common humanity. He calls them brothers. My brothers, don't do this. He pleads with them by mercy. I beg you, don't do this. He pleads with them by their morality. 
He says, do not do so wickedly. And the verb that he uses is not just about the wickedness of the things they do. The verb gives us an insight into the wickedness that they are. And he does the unthinkable. He offers up a lesser sin in the face of a greater sin. Now, it is possible that this is some sort of bargaining maneuver that Lot knows that his daughters are engaged to be married to other men of Sodom and that perhaps they will back off because of this. I think Lot also knows that they don't want women. But he is driven to the unthinkable to try and confront this sin and what they do is they respond with even more violence. They order him around, stand back, get out of the way. They deride him and his righteousness. Who is this guy? The language is very derisive. And he says, you don't belong here. Get out of town, Lot. Who do you think you are telling us what we are supposed to do and how we are supposed to live? Have you ever faced that in the workplace? Or in your family? Who do you think you are to tell me how I should live my life? This is where society has gotten to. You see, they will not settle for just a little bit of wickedness. They will not even settle for a lot of wickedness. What they have to have is approval of their wickedness and participation in their wickedness. It's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4. He says they are surprised when you do not join with them in their flood of debauchery and they malign you because of it. This is the state of the Christian in a hostile world. And the angels have to save Lot. This is the sin that deserves punishment. But we also see that there is a sin that blinds. Now, there is the obvious blinding, isn't there? It's right here in the text. The Sodomites. By a supernatural work, the angels blind the men. It's the same word that's used. The only other place it's used is when the Syrian army is blinded in Second Kings by God. They should know that they are being blinded. They should know as they speak that no one can see. And yet it is almost comical if it were not so offensive. The blindness does not stop them from seeking to pursue their sin. Moses puts it in almost a comical way. They tired themselves out trying to get at the door. Even in their blindness... They are insistent upon their sin. They have become like animals because this is what sin does to us. Sin butchers the image of God in us and it makes us less like God and makes us therefore less human. This is what all sorts of sin do. There's a second obvious blinding here that we see and that is the blinding of Lot's son-in-law's. Now, we wonder what Lot's reputation was with them. Was he known as a man that Peter describes as being righteous? Did he speak about his relative Abraham and the promise? Did he speak about the God of Abraham, the true and living God? 
Maybe he did. If he did, they didn't take him seriously. Because you see, he comes to his sons-in-law and with great urgency, he uses two commands. He says, get up, get out. Bad things are going to happen. And they respond by making jokes at his expense. He seemed to them to be jesting. There's a note of mockery in here. They are mocking the one who would save them. Have you experienced that? Perhaps you are not the one mocked. Perhaps you are the one mocking. You think you are so intelligent. You know all of the things. You don't understand why other people are so fuddy-duddy and behind the times to think about the Bible. You mock your parents and grandparents. If they only knew. Don't you know what science says? Don't you know what all of the latest studies say? Or perhaps you have been mocked. That hurts, doesn't it? When all you are trying to do is save someone. Rescue them from the destruction to come. But there is a non-obvious person who is blinded by sin. It's not just those in Sodom. It's Lot too. Do you see it? Lot alone was different among from all of the residents of Sodom. He braved a mob to save his visitors. Peter called him a righteous man who was vexed, that is, agitated, annoyed by all of the sin in his surroundings. So far, so good. Except for we need to remember he was in Sodom. And he didn't have to be. He had seen the land, the valley near Sodom and had gone there. And then he had pitched his tent near and in Sodom. And now he has a house, a permanent structure in Sodom. He has accommodated himself and his profession to those who are around him. We don't know for certain, but it is very likely because of the chronology of years, and because of the other things in the text, that Lot's wife was a native of Sodom. That Lot thought he was smarter than Paul, so to speak, when Paul said, do not be unequally yoked. Lot probably thought he could do evangelistic dating. Didn't turn out so well for him, did it? He's living in a town where he's afraid to go out at night, where men are trying to kill him and destruction is going to rain down on him. Let that be a warning to all of you who are considering, well, you know, this person I really like and they don't really know the Lord and they've got some bad habits, but I think I can turn them around. No, you can't. God may, but you can't. Lot had two daughters, and he thought nothing of giving them in marriage to other Sodomite men. Why did he not go out and go visit Abraham and say, Do you have two nice boys in your house? You know, hard workers, clean-cut men that I can give my daughters to. No. He finds ragtag, wicked, unbelieving men to give his daughters to. 
And, and then the amazing thing about him, that he is so blinded by his own sin, is after the angels confront him, after he goes to his sons-in-law, after he realizes what God is about to do, you know what he does? He lingers. The text makes it very clear. He hangs around. He's killing time. He's not doing things that need to get done before he leaves. He's not hurriedly packing a bag. He's not taking family mementos. He is just standing around in a daze. So much so, it's very interesting that the original Hebrew text has a symbol for a pause right after the word linger. Because God wants you and me to stop and think about that for a minute. Do you linger over your sin? Do you say to yourself, well, you know, I could, I know I really should, but with all that is before him, the amazing thing is that Lot needs to be grabbed again by the angels. And the Lord is still at work in his midst. This is a picture of salvation. God wakes him up out of his stupor. Look at verse 12. Do you have anyone else who's here? Wake up, get up, get them. God reminds him that destruction is coming in verse 13. The Lord has sent us to destroy this city. And the word for destroy is the same word that is used in the flood. Lot would know that from the stories he had heard from Abraham. God is at work. God is taking the initiative. Can't you see? You see, this text shows to us the foolishness of counting upon ourselves in our own holiness and righteousness before God. Because Lot is a righteous man. Lot has heard the voice of God. Lot has been taught by Abraham, and still he doesn't get it. But for God, he would be destroyed. And the Lord brings a real sense of urgency to Lot. The angels grab him and they drag him out of the city. We might even imagine in our mind's eye the kind of cartoonish scene with the heels in the dirt and them dragging him, leaving a trail behind. We might also imagine the less cartoonish scene when Jesus says in John 6, No one will come to the Father except that I draw him. Drag him, the word is. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, God grabs you by the scruff of your collar when you were kicking and screaming and dragged you heels in the dirt, leaving lines. As you were saying, oh, can't I just spend another day in Sodom? We need to remember that when we think about sinners. They is us. The third and final thing that we see is that sin must be destroyed. Now, of course, there is the obvious thing that we see. The Lord keeps His word and He sends fire and brimstone, hell on earth to Sodom. The land is completely destroyed. It is so destroyed that the way the Bible describes it is that not only are all the people killed, all the buildings are wiped out, all the land is made useless Centuries from now, the Bible will talk about fruit that is grown in the land near Sodom and how it is poisonous. God completely wipes out these sinners. 
But we have to remember that it is not just them who need to be destroyed in sin. Sin needs to be destroyed in here. Lot has a new life. He goes from a rich house in Sodom to a caveman. Living in a cave in squalor. Abandoned. He tries to negotiate to go to another little city and realizes he can't even stay there and he ends up in a cave. And his wife, she becomes a byword in the New Testament, doesn't she? Remember Lot's wife. Now, I think many of us have an image here in our minds of some kind of magic hocus-pocus where Lot's wife is not supposed to look back and she makes the mistake, she peeks over her shoulder and is instantly transformed into salt. That's not what the text says. The text says, Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. What happened is, even with hell raining down on Sodom, her heart was still there that she could not keep up with Lot. She stopped, looked back, and was there as destruction rained down on her. She was turned into a pillar of salt because she was more concerned about her sin than staying out of the way of fire boulders. That's how deadly sin is in our life. And it's not just them, because this afternoon you can read an almost completely parallel passage in Judges 19. It's almost exactly the same. The house gets surrounded. They want to attack the visitor. There's one important difference. They're Israelites. And Judges is saying, you're just like Sodom. You see, sin must be rooted out of our life. You can take the girls out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of the girls, is what we see at the end of this passage. They are so lost that they think because Sodom has been destroyed, every place might have been destroyed. Because, of course, Sodom is normal. Sin and degradation is a normal thing. And so there's surely no one else who survived in the whole world. That's their mentality. And they are a place without hope. They are just like their mother. They're trying to find their own solutions. And they do yet more wickedness. And this wickedness, wickedness so wicked we cannot name it, this wickedness leads to yet more sin and destruction because the Moabites and the Ammonites are known for being enemies of the gospel, enemies of the church, and idolaters. So is there any hope in a passage like this? We can look at it and say, American society is in trouble. We have a lot of sin like this. We can look at it and say the church is in trouble. We have a lot of sin like this. How could something as black as Genesis 19 provide us with anything other than shaking our heads and saying, what in the world do we do? We find hope here, ironically, in this horrible story at the end. After fleeing Sodom, Lot's daughter gives birth to the Moabites. A daughter of Sodom. The Moabites are idolaters, but 
There is one very famous Moabite, is there not? It's Ruth. And we know who is descended from Ruth, don't we? David the king. But we know really who is descended from Moab, don't we? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and listen to this sentence and let it sink in. There is sodomite blood in Jesus. He is a descendant of the most wicked city on the face of the earth. And he conquers that sin. We are not left there. We are not left without hope. You may be hopeless for our nation. You may be hopeless for your marriage. You may be hopeless for your family. You may be hopeless that you will be free from sin. And you need to know that Jesus gives hope. There is nothing that he cannot conquer. Not the blackest sin. Not the most disgusting descriptions, not the worst of stories, not the worst of nations. Jesus will conquer all by His grace. If Jesus can bring salvation out of Sodom, He can bring hope and holiness to your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is powerful. That there is all hope to be found in him. Lord, give us that hope. Push us on to holiness and to killing sin. That we, O Lord, might be more like Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen.